Go in your Bible tonight to 2 Samuel in chapter number 18. 2 Samuel chapter number 18. I'm going to read uh, a scripture that, that's probably a little bit familiar to you. And uh, well, just bring from this some, some things that I hope will help us uh, as men uh, in our walk with God and in our responsibilities with our families and in our marriages. And so we're in 2 Samuel in chapter number 18, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 24. I'm going to read a portion of Scripture for you, and then, <clears throat> then I'm going to um, uh, sort of catch us up to where we are in this, and, uh, and then we'll make, uh, we'll make some applications for you, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse number 24. And David sat between the two gates... And the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall and lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king. And the king said, If he be alone, there's tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, He also bringeth tidings. And the watchman said, Methinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man, and come, cometh with good tidings. And Ahimeaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king, and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord, the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies." of my lord the king, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved, and went up to the chamber over the gate, and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O, o my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Let's pray. Father, help us now. And give us, dear God, the things that we have need of. Bless and open our hearts, our minds, our eyes uh, to the things, dear God, that you would uh, apply, uh, Lord, to us from this scripture. Challenge us as men, as fathers, as husbands. And uh, God, I pray that when this study is over, that we will have made the decisions you would have us to make. I want to take a moment and pray for a dad. I want to pray for Adam's dad. And pray that you would bless him even now uh, as I speak. He's in surgery and I know that you're there with him. And so I pray that you would give him uh, strength and blessing and guidance and watch over him, I pray. Bless the doctors, guide them and use them, dear Lord, as only you can. And Father, we'll thank you for what you do. Bless Liz and her recovery and, and, and uh, for Luke, Lord, we pray. And of course, for Kim, God, for your hand upon her life and that you would encourage her. Lord, bless Clint. Be with him. 
Charlie and so many others that are on our hearts now. I pray you would bless. Thank you for bringing those back that, uh, Lord, have uh, not been well. I pray for the heirs family. You'd bless them and get them better. And uh, just bless us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. The story that we have read tonight is a, is, it's a tragic one, and uh, a very tragic one. And uh, David was a mighty warrior, and often he had enjoyed the thrill of victory. Rarely had he suffered the agony of defeat. Um, after one of, one of his victories over a wild Bedouin tribe, David took to wife the daughter of the tribal king to be his wife. Together they had a son and they called his name Absalom. It's significant that the name Absalom means the father of peace. He had dreams for his boy, just like every dad does. He, he had dreams of what his son would become and what his son would accomplish. And, uh, and, and so uh, it, it had a, a notable beginning in that there was within the heart of the dad uh, a great, a great dream and aspiration for his boy. David uh, watched as Absalom grew up to literally become the most popular of all of David's children at the time. But as Absalom grew, so grew the kingdom. And because of that, the king's responsibilities seemed to have begun to pull him away from his family. And there are glimpses of that throughout the scripture in David's relationship with his children and, and uh, his responsibilities as a father. Because of that, that drift that came between David and, and Absalom and David and even his other children, um, uh, within Absalom there developed a rebellious spirit uh, and there came a time when he stole from his father the very thing that had stole that that that, that uh, had had stolen his father from him, and that is the kingdom. And so he sets about Absalom does to undermine his father's authority. We don't have time to go into all the scriptures of that, but he literally sat in the gate and swayed the people's hearts toward himself. When the time came, when the coup attempt was was almost at its Highest point, David flees to the mountains and after a period of regrouping, a great battle takes place. It's David's army versus Absalom's. It's fathers against son. And David won. And so in our, in our text that we read tonight, all about him, a victory party has broken out. And they're celebrating. Uh, they're, they're cheering. There's great revelry because, because what they had hoped to happen did happen. It justice was done. Absalom, who stole the kingdom, was defeated, and David was victorious. And so there's a there, there's a great celebration going on about him. But but David had other things in mind. Suddenly, winning wasn't everything to David. He he's not worried about the palace. He's not worried about the position. He's not worried about the possessions that he left behind. He has one question on his mind. Um, is the young man safe? He wanted to know how his boy was doing. And every messenger that came in, he asked that, he asked that same question, is the young man safe to Ahimeaz? And then, and then after a painful wait, Cushai runs up and the same question is presented to him. And, and finally the word came from that fleet-footed runner 
And he said to David simply that the victory was complete. The enemy had been routed, but the king's son was dead. David the king had won, but David the father had lost. And the news pierced his heart like an arrow. He turned from the victory party and ascended the stairway uh, to his room. It was not a king. It was not a king ascending those stairs. That wasn't the voice of a king that you hear sobbing out those tragic words. That was the voice of a father, a father who had a heart full of regrets about his family life. Listen, listen to his words. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I don't know how many times in my ministry over the years that I have heard those very words, would God I had, would God I had. Pastor, I wish I had done things differently. Pastor, I, I wish I could go back and undo what I did. Would God I had, would God I had, would God I had made some changes, would God I hadn't done it exactly the way I did, would God I had. Sometimes they come from a parent whose heart is full of regrets over wasted years and neglected opportunities to spend with their children. Sometimes it came from a child who had looked into a casket and seen the cold ashen face of a deceased parent and could not escape the guilt of being a burden rather than a blessing to the person that brought them into this world. I've, I've been a part of some tragic funerals where, where I literally have had to restrain people because of the sorrow and the grief and the guilt that overwhelmed them at the funeral of their loved ones. Sometimes it was a mate who had chosen selfishly and had lost the things that were most dear uh, to them in life. And, 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 and it's tragic. Would God I had. Now here's the reality. Listen carefully. Every single one of us will either live a would God I had or a thank God I did life. One of the two. And sometimes in our past, there are things that we wish that we could undo and overdo and erase, and we know that we can't go back and claim one second. But we can live forward in our life. From beyond our past, we can live a thank God I did life where we are grateful that in spite of the failures that every one of us has at some point in our life, we're grateful that we got right. We're grateful that we made things right. We're grateful that, that we adjusted our life uh, back with God and, and, and uh, dedicated our life to God. We don't have to be bound by the wood God I had. We don't have to be bound by regrets about the past. We can, we can live forward. We can move forward and live out a thank God I did life. And I pray that that's the way in the case with every single one of us. Now listen carefully, if we don't get the family right, guys, if we don't get the family right, if we don't make them priority, if we don't minister to the people that know us best and the people that we are most responsible for, then what we will have is, is uh, a regret of neglect, a regret that we neglected the thing that was most important and the people that, that, that we should have cherished the most. Now, what the Bible does, amazingly, is it gives us the bigger picture of David's life. We, we see it all. We see the victories and the successes. We see the failures uh, 
and the flaws. We see every bit of it. God throws it all out right out in front of us so that we can learn not just from his victories, but we can learn from his failures and, and make note of those things. And I, I, think it's, I think it's obvious. You cannot watch the man that... You cannot watch the man that walks from that victory celebration with a broken heart not to become very much aware of the fact that he had regrets about his family. And I think there's some things that you and I can learn from him <clears throat> that will help us avoid the same mistakes. Somebody said a wise man learns from his own mistakes. But a wiser man still learns from the mistakes of others. So I want to I make a couple of notations for you tonight in our, in our time together. First of all, I believe that David regretted that he did not value family relationships as he could. David regretted that he did not value family relationships as he should. If you'll see the man, if you'll see the man walking and weeping and sobbing, you'll realize that the boy whose body hangs from a battlefield tree with a dart thrust through his, his sternum, you'll realize that now, now at this time, David realizes the value and he weeps for his son. And he wants to embrace the boy that he refused to embrace. He wants to, he wants to speak words of forgiveness to the son that he refused to speak words of forgiveness to. He wants to welcome him back when, when the boy came back, there was no welcoming Matt out whatsoever. And so here's a father that regrets that he did not value the relationship that he should have revalued. Now, he named him, he named him the father of peace. And so I think it's obvious that David had high hopes for his son early on. But David the king, listen carefully to this, David the king yielded to the tyranny of the urgent. They were pressing things that for some reason his, his value system became so convoluted inside of him that he felt like held more value to him than his own son. And I'm going to tell you, we have a lot of things vying for our attention. If we're not careful, we can, we can, we can, we can place monetary things over, over personal things. We can... We can actually become to value things more than we do the people that are a part of our life. It's, it's, not long, it's not long in David's life that he began to place last things first and first things last. And his priorities got all mixed up. And at the end of his life, he regrets, he regrets his, his improper priority. Father and son drifted apart and then the neglected son became a resentful man and it escalated to the point that they, they weren't even on speaking terms. And, and we, we have to make up our minds as men whether we're going to be led by ambition or walk in the Spirit. Okay. I'm, I'm just telling you right up front, I've been at it long enough that I know this to be true. Ambition-led men are not Spirit-led men. Just you, you can't because ambition is of the flesh. The Spirit leads us away from the flesh. It doesn't mean that we don't want to be successful, we don't want to achieve. It's the motive behind it all. Because what ambition does is it elevates me. It places me high. It puts the spotlight on me and makes me seem as though I am a somebody. The Spirit 
spirit-led life recognizes that we are nobody without him. And, and, and without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And yet with Christ, I can do all things. And so there's a definite difference between being led by our ambition and, and being led by the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between the two. And sometimes from the outside, nobody really can tell. So that's the question we have to answer within ourselves. That's a question we have to answer within ourselves. Do I want to make somebody out of Dean? Do I, want, do, I want to, do I want to promote me? Am I in this so that somebody might praise me somehow or that I might place my name somewhere in a, on a flyer, someplace I'm speaking? Is that, is that what I'm all about? If it is, then it's so shallow and so sad and and so useless. And you have to apply that to whatever area of life it needs application to you. But, but I can't tell whether or not you're ambition driven unless you speak it. Okay. So you've got to answer the question, am I doing this because I'm ambitious and I want to elevate myself? Or am I doing this because the Spirit of God is leading me in, in that direction? Let me just say this to you. Um, if you're, if you're led by ambition, you will become enslaved to external results. You can mark that down and sign my name on it. It's true. Ambition-driven people are enslaved to external results. Okay. Spirit-led people look at eternal results. And God never calls us to sacrifice our family on the altar of success. Years ago when I was a young man in the ministry, I heard a guy say, never sacrifice, on the, altar, never sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. If you let that soak in, it has a lot of depth to it. Never sacrifice, never sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Okay, it's not worth the sacrifice. Now, let me just... Let me just make a couple of applications here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for, for it. Now, that's a, that's an, that was an extremely radical statement. We've talked about that considering the culture of Ephesus. And I want to remind you, and I want to remind me, that Jesus didn't tell me to love uh, the church even. Okay, this is, this, this is the work I do for my life. I've call, I'm called into ministry. God didn't say, Dean, I want you to love the church as I love the church. I can't. I can't do that. It's His church. I have, to, I have to recognize that. He hasn't called me to love my job, my hobbies, my possessions. He hasn't said, Dean, love these things as I love the church. No, no, the only thing He ever said that about was my wife. And so the number one the number one assignment for me as a husband is to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Now, let me help you with this. You say, Pastor, I don't know that I can do that. Well, it's a lifetime assignment. It's, 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 it's every day for the rest of our life. We're striving toward that, to love our wife as Christ loved the church. And there are moments we probably do that really good, and there are moments we probably fall very far short. But it's a continual work in process that, that, that we're supposed to be doing that. And, and it's, it's vital. And by the way, that, that was an extraordinarily 
radical statement back then, but it shouldn't be so much radical today. And yet I, I think that sometimes it is. I, I think there are many women who maybe with different phraseology would ask this question, whatever happened to love after marriage? What, whatever happened? We, we were deeply in love and then we got married and it was downhill from that point. So, so whatever happens to love after we're married? And, and I think that there's a great responsibility if we're going to love her as Christ loved the church, then the love doesn't, it doesn't dwindle, it doesn't cease, it grows. And if you've been married any amount of time and you don't love your wife more than you did then, then something has happened in your life to divert your love and to take your love in some other direction. We ought to love our wife because the, the love that we have for her should be something that's continually continually growing. I, I think that there are two things we ought to do. We ought to protect and provide. Those are responsibilities that we have under love. If I love her, I'm going to protect her. If I, if, if I love her, I'm going to provide for her. And, uh, you know, the, the, we were in Oakland last week. We went to a Walmart of all places, and it was like, I mean, I hadn't felt that feeling in a long time since I was a teenager. And, and and it was just, the air was thick. I mean, it was trouble. The pastor told me later, if I'd have known you were going to that Walmart, I'd have sent two men from my church with you. And it's just bad. It's just a bad place. Cars with windows broke out all over the place. It's just not a good place. And, and so I was, my antenna were up. I mean, I was, and I talked with Susie when we got in the store. I said, no. I put my hand on the carriage. I said, you got to watch where you push your carriage. We're going to get our stuff and we're getting out of here. And so we got into the car. She said to me, she said, you were... You were tense. And I said, yeah, because I've been there before. I know what that's like. And I said, you weren't tense at all. You were just zippity-doo on through it. And, you know, there was, you had no concerns at all. And, uh, and she said, well, it's because you're with me, and I know you're going to protect me. And I was thinking, yeah, well, there's a lot more people in that Walmart than one guy. And I appreciate, I appreciate that. But my job, my job was to protect her. And that's, that's more than carrying a concealed permit. That makes us feel good, but it, it's, it's, it's more than that. We're, we're to protect our families. We, we should protect them from hurt. Sometimes, sometimes, protecting, sometimes protecting our wife and our family is, is, is having to protect them from, uh, emotionally from the expectations and demands of others. Some, sometimes I've got to step in and say, no, that's not your job. Your job is to... Your job is to be a mother and a wife. Sometimes we have to protect our children and our wives emotionally. And sometimes we have to protect them from becoming victims of their own emotions. Because women are emotional creatures and sometimes their emotions, emotions can get all out of whack. And sometimes as a man I have to sit down and say, look, we, don't, don't fret, don't sweat, don't, don't get all you know, discombobulated over this. We had six children. And when the first one was born, everything was good. We figured things out, and she was just going fine. And then we had another one, and it was like, boom, there's two. And then, boom, there was three. And all of a sudden, they were, they were double and then triple and then quadruple the responsibilities. And with every one, she became frustrated. I had to remind her, you, got, you don't have just one mouth to feed now. You've got four. 
And we got, you, got to, you can't be so hard on yourself. You, you, can't, you can't be that tough on yourself. And sometimes you've got to take some of those burdens off of her and, and help her with things that she feels like has to be done. And, and, and so that's the way we protect our family, not just by walking to the front door when the booger man's coming in, all right? There's other ways. Then we have to provide. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, But if any man provide not for his own, especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So if we don't provide for our family, we, we, are, we are worse than an infidel. And I tell young church planners when I speak at church planners conferences, hey, your job is to provide for your family. What does that mean for you? You know what that means? That means making phone calls. That means setting up meetings. That, mean, that means, that means uh, raising support so that when you come out wherever God's called you, that you'll have a financial base where your wife won't have to scrape for groceries and you have to, take, you, you, you have to uh, work three jobs so you can't pastor a church and you can't do your job. And I, there's a lot of young men that come out to the Northwest from places around the country whose pastors say, I oh, don't worry about it, just get out there and do your best. And the reality of the matter is most of those churches don't last because of the fact that they have not taken the time to provide for their own like the Scripture commands them to do so. And sometimes it's more than just money to buy food, to pay rent, to purchase clothes. Sometimes it's meeting needs. If I'm going to provide for my wife, I have to meet needs that, that, that may not be categorized by me as essential, but they are essential for her. And sometimes I just provide wants. They're not always needs, but things that I know that will, that will make her happy. And, and I think we ought to be sensitive to the needs of our wife and in our family. Uh, maybe they just need more of us than we're giving. M maybe they need more of our time. Maybe they don't need trinkets and, and toys. Maybe they need you. Maybe they need you to get down on the floor and, and play games with them. Maybe that's what they need. I was in, at an outlet mall in California when Susie and I were there and went to an outlet mall. I went in a, went in a Converse store. And the first time since high school, I think, or maybe early years of college, I tried on a pair of Chuck Taylor Converse. Hadn't had a pair of those on in forever, and they are the craze again now. It's hysterical to me. So I put on an old pair of Chucks, and I, I thought about the time in my senior year that my basketball team, my basketball team uh, was wearing Chuck Taylors, and my dad bought me a, a, a red suede pair of Chucks. I don't even know how much they cost. I just knew that was the baddest shoes that I had ever strapped on in my life. Man, they had the white star on the side and the Chuck Taylor on the back and, and everything else was, was sort of maroon suede. And it, they were just cool looking shoes. As I strapped those on, I was reminded of how flat footed they are and how they lack the cushion of the modern shoe. And so I thought, I don't think I'll wear these to avoid hip surgery. But anyhow, uh, I just remembered that my dad, my dad, it was my dad, Chuck Taylors weren't essential, but they meant something to me. My dad worked, my dad worked 40 years for the Seaboard Coastline Railroad. And when it came time for me to have a letter jacket, um, it, was, uh, it was my dad that bought my letter jacket for me. Somebody stole it. But anyhow, we won't go into all the details of that. But, but I, I, I still long for that jacket because of what it meant to me. 
And it was my dad that bought that for me. And that wasn't, that wasn't essential. But boy, it was, it was something that really meant a lot to me in life. So sometimes to provide doesn't just mean putting essential meat and potatoes on the table. Sometimes it's being sensitive enough to know, you know, he'd like this or she'd like this or this would be a blessing to them and, and, and doing that. Second of all, not only did he regret that he didn't value family relationships as he should have, but second of all, he regretted that he didn't think less of himself. So if you're not going to place value on other relationships, where does your value go? It goes to me. Okay, if I'm not going to provide everybody else's need, who, who am I normally basically going to probably provide for? The things that make me happy. And that may just be sticking my money up in a, in a, you know, a coffee can and hiding it on a top shelf, but that's what makes me happy. And so, so sometimes, sometimes when we don't value family relationships as we should, it's because we're thinking more of ourselves than we are others. And David regretted, I believe, that he didn't think less of himself. Before, before the conflict with Absalom grew into a mountain of problems, there was a conflict between David the king and David the father. Because the duties of both, the duties of both, they just battled over which one would win out. I don't think there's any possible way that Absalom could have escaped the fact that his dad was a living legend. I mean, everybody knew it. They made, listen, they wrote songs about David. They sang about David. David was legend to the degree that it even made Saul jealous of him because of what had been attributed to David. And, and I, maybe, maybe, maybe the sword of Goliath hung majestically above the, the mantel place in the palace. I don't know. But I do know that that boy knew his dad was the greatest man in all the kingdom. And I have no doubt that he looked up to him. I have no doubt that he, that, that, that he idolized his dad. But, but tragedy struck. Tragedy struck. His half-brother Amnon raped his sister Tamar. David, David rather than doing something about it. He did nothing. But Absalom didn't do nothing. Absalom did something. He revenged or he avenged his sister's humiliation and degradation by setting up the murder of Amnon. And then because David would not take the leading role of a father and deal with the scandal within his own family, Absalom hits the trail and flees from his father's presence for five long years. David and Absalom were estranged, mainly because David the father was more concerned with the reputation of David the king than he was the scandal within his own family. And so rather than owning it, rather than being the not the man on the throne in Jerusalem, but the man on the throne in his own house. Rather than making the tough decisions there, he left it for Absalom to deal with. 
And so he hid himself in his office and buried his face in his kingdom and let things work out on their own, and it never works out well. I, I'm reminded of Jacob and how the, the sons of Jacob went into Shechem because of the, the abuse of their sister Dinah, and they went in and literally murdered all of the men of the city. And the only thing that Jacob could say when all that was done was, Ye have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land. That's so all he thought about was himself. He wasn't worried about what had happened to his daughter. He didn't defend her. He never went, he never went to confront and approach the guilty party and demand justice. His boys went in because the dad did nothing and they wiped out an entire city of people and all that Jacob could say to his blood-stained boys is, wow, you've really messed up my reputation. That's a sad, sickening way for a man to live his life is to think more of himself than he does his family. David regretted that he didn't think less of himself. Look, David could kill a giant. David could inspire an army and command a kingdom, but he couldn't lead his own family. And if we're not men enough to step up to the plate and own what's ours and lead what's ours, and admit even sometimes our own misgivings and our own flaws. And rather than hiding behind a facade and trying to cover the fact that, that we do have flaws and things are not always as they should be, then we really don't have the credentials to lead whatsoever. The shepherd boy who had the courage to face the giant and had nothing to lose and showed no fear, became the man with the kingdom to protect. And he was afraid to face his own family. Let me say this, guys, and then I'm going I'm to move on. But let, me let me just say this to you. We better not develop a royalty complex. We better not develop a royalty complex. The reality of the matter is, uh, you know, if we're more concerned about our reputation in the marketplace than we are with our standing with the people that know us best and love us the most, if we're more concerned about what everybody else thinks of us than what the people in our own home think of us, then we've really, really got messed up priorities. And we're, we're husbands and fathers, not kings. We're husbands and fathers. We're here to serve. That's really what we lead. We're, we're servant leaders in our houses. We're, we're to serve. We're to protect, provide, to love the children that God gives us. To honor and love the wife that God gives us. Not Lord over them. Kings are entitled. We are privileged. Kings are entitled, but we are privileged, and we ought to live. We ought to live that way. When his boy came home, when his boy came home, David reacted as a king rather than responding as a father, and so he wouldn't talk with him. Nothing to do with him. He's not going to embarrass me and embarrass my kingdom by creating 
creating this, this further scandal. I don't want nothing. You tell him to go home, Joab. And so for two years, even though he said, bring, you bring him back, even though he said, you bring him back, for two years he wouldn't speak to him. For two years. Two years of wasted, wasted, silent suffering where a father and a son don't even talk. And if we see ourselves as kings rather than fathers, it changes our perspective on life. And, and, and our relationships with people will, will always be about us and about what makes us happy rather than what's right. And so let's, let's, don't, get, let's don't get a royalty complex. Third thing I want you to notice is this, and that is that, is that, that David regretted not spending more time with his family. He regretted not spending more time with his family. David was, David was iconic. I don't have any doubt. I don't have any doubt that there were a lot of things vying for his attention. One of the when I was young, when I was young in the ministry, I um, one of the guys that that really inspired me was was an old evangelist by the name of Billy Sunday. Most of you probably have heard about him. I've got his. 1928 Union Pacific cards at my house. Him and his wives, they signed. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a bench out of the Detroit Tabernacle, uh, a brick out of the Tabernacle at Winona Lake. I've spent seven trips to his house in Winona Lake and sat in his chairs and read his books. They locked the door behind me. I just was able to go through his papers and it's just an amazing thing. He was one of the great inspirations of my life when I was young. One of the things that I found out was the fact that, that he was so busy. Um, God used him to shake this continent for Christ. He was more responsible for prohibition than any other living man. He was, he was, he was liquor's greatest opponent. His voice echoed throughout the land. He would have, they would build tabernacles in cities he went to and in, 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 Sometimes three times a day, the tabernacle would be filled with tens of thousands of people. It was amazing. Just an amazing thing. The pictures are astounding. The great, the great Rockefellers and the people of our nation uh, hitched their wagon to him when he would come to town. They would want an audience, want to visit with him. And he was the most famous spiritual man in all of America in the, in the heyday of his time. And yet his, his children, he lost his children because he had no time for his family. He was busy trying to save everybody else's family and he lost his own. Tragedy. Tra tragedy. He was going up to preach in a meeting and somebody handed him a piece of paper telling him of the, telling him of the death of his son George. And he folded the paper up and stuck it in his pocket and went up into the pulpit and just by the mercy and grace of God, he preached the message that night at, at, at one of the, the great tabernacle meetings. Later after Billy died, later after Billy died, his wife, who was known as Ma Sunday, became friends with Ruth Graham and Billy Graham. And they sat down many years ago when Billy Graham had just started out in his meetings and they were just beginning to crest around the nation, around the world. And they asked, they asked, Miss Sunday, they said, Ma, 
Do you have any advice for us? And this was her advice. Ruth, you stay home with the kids. You stay home with the kids. Your, your children cannot be neglected for your ministry to be what God wants it to be. And I think that sometimes in life, whatever, whatever you do, it's easy for you to get caught up. I've known men that had hobbies that just robbed, robbed them of time for their family, and it, it ought never be that way. There ought, there ought never be anything that takes that priority and becomes more important to us than the families that God has given us. I think, I think that David regretted that he did not spend more time with his family. The generation before me had a philosophy, and the philosophy was simply this. It was give them, give them quality time, not quantity time. But how in the world do you schedule quality time? You don't know when your boy's going to throw a no-hitter. I don't mean you, you, you can be there for every ball game maybe, but you don't know when quality's coming. You don't know when it'll be when your child will call your name for the first time or walk across the floor of a room. And I realize that with jobs and things that, that we're not a, always able to be there, but, but I think that sometimes if our priorities are right, we can be there more, more than we are. You can't, you can't just say, I'm going to have a really quality day. Sometimes it's in the quantity. Sometimes it's by recognizing the priority that, that special events happen in our life. Our family will sit around at Christmas time and everybody's gathered together and we'll laugh about things that happen. Some of them, some of them there's no way. I mean, how do you plan that? How, how do you, some of the things we talk about, how, did you, how could you schedule that to happen? Well, you couldn't. It just happened. And it's a family memory now. And, and then there are things that obviously, vacations and things like that, that were planned and scheduled and Thanksgiving meals and Christmases. I'm just simply saying, don't neglect your family. Make sure to the best of your ability to be there. And listen, there comes a time in all of our lives as men that, that we're given opportunities to show our family their priority. I spoke at a... Um, a men's meeting a while back in, in Nebraska. And the young pastor that was there who was heading up the men's meeting called me on the phone and said, Brother Dean, I don't know what to do. The men's meeting is in two days. I, was on a, uh, I flew in on a Friday, spoke Friday night, and Saturday, no, Thursday, Thursday night, Friday night, and flew back Saturday morning. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, you know, my wife had a death in her family and she's heartbroken and she's got to go to Michigan from Nebraska. And, and so he said, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm, 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 I'm struggling with this. And I said, you go with her. You go with her. You've got somebody, you've got somebody that can take care of this. There's a good man in your church that can, that can run things. Used to be a pastor. He, he can handle this. You go with her. And I said this to him. I said, there are going to arise a few times in your life when you can express to your wife and to your family that they're priority. And the way that you do that is you choose them over the opportunities that are presented to you. Don't wait. I said, it won't happen all the time, and it's not, it's not needful all the time. But when the opportunity presents itself for you to be able to do something that says, you mean this much to me, this is, a, this is your biggest meeting of the year. Tell your wife now. Let your wife know how important she is to you. Don't, don't squander this opportunity. And so he did, and the meeting went great, and 
I got a phone call from him later and he said, Pastor, thank you for your advice. It gave me some peace over something I was struggling with. And I'm going to just tell you, that doesn't just happen in ministry. There are going to come times in your life when, when maybe you're about to buy something and your wife needs something else. And you're able to make priority. You're able to say, okay, I'll get this later. You need this now. It, it's, just, it's just opportunities are presented to us to, to show us that, that we need to show our family um, how valuable they are to us. I'll give you the story before. I've never forgot it. I was a young man. And I heard John O. Rice make the statement that somebody had called him and wanted to make an appointment with him. And they wanted to meet him the next day, and he said, I can't, I have an appointment tomorrow, but I can meet you the day after. And so the guy said, okay, all right. If that's, if that's your opening, I'll take it. So he set up an appointment. Well, the guy comes into his office that next day, the, the day after, and he says to him, um, I'm just here for a moment. I'm not going to stay because I don't, I don't really need your time now. In fact, I'm going to leave the church. And he said, well, could you take a moment and explain what's going on? He said, I sure will. I asked you to meet with me yesterday, and you told me you had an appointment. And I rode by your house, and I saw you out in the yard playing with your children. And he said, you lied to me. And he said, I want nothing to do with you. And Dr. Rice said to him, he said, sir, what you don't understand is the value of my family. They were my appointment. They were my appointment. Your day is today. Yesterday was theirs. And I want to tell you, there comes times we have to change schedule, and I've had to do that. I know that. But I also know that if we're not willing to make non-negotiable time that shows value in relationships, then we're going to be jerked pillar to post. And the reality of the matter is probably Probably we're going to get so out of whack that we're going to lose the things that are, that are dearest to us. There was a statement that used to be made, and again, this was early in my ministry. It would be on signs, church signs. You know how they have the marquees out. The family that prays together stays together. And I've known families that prayed together that didn't stay together because because there was so much rigidity and prayer was forced and Bible memory was with twisted arms. And I've always said this, it could be also that the family that plays together stays together. Sometimes we need to come down off of our lofty positions as, as head honcho and we need to get down and get muddy. You know, we need to get down and play games. If I could say it this way, I think that the sound of laughter in a home may be just as important as the sound of prayer. Because I, I, I think there's a, there's a law and there's a spirit. And I think sometimes we, we try to lead by law when if you subtract the spirit from the law, the letter of the law, it kills. So, so we, have to, we have to have that in our, in our homes. One thing that I started many years ago, 
I hired a guy, one of the first guys I ever hired. In fact, I think he may have been the first. And he came to me from another staff and, and I, I asked him a question. I said, when, when, was, when, when was your last break? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, when was your last break? And he had no break. I said, you, you haven't been on vacation? No, I've never had a vacation. And his family was a mess. And so I made a requirement then that I've always kept. And that is that if you work for me, you go on a vacation every year. It's required. We give, we give them a bonus. You go on vacation every year and you go with your family. It's a paid vacation. You go. It's not to a spiritual meeting. It's not to don't go hear somebody preach. Don't go somewhere where everybody's standing around strumming a guitar, singing kumbaya. That's not a vacation. Get away with your family. Have family time. Give them priority. Give them you and spend time with you. The reason for that is not for the staff member. It's for the family. It's for the, it is for the health of, of their kids and their marriage and things like that. And down through the years, um, before I came to Idaho, I've had so many guys that I've been able to help and that have come through our church and through our ministry that thanked me because their priorities got balanced out. And they realized that it wasn't just about burning yourself to a crisp serving God, that part of serving God is, in, with, is within the home. And so it's important. Let's, let's lead and let's don't have our regrets, a regret of, of neglect, and a regret of not spending time with our families. Let's give them us. That's the biggest gift you'll ever give is yourself to your children and to your wife. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your blessings. And I pray, dear God, that you would uh, help us as men to lead and help us to realize, Lord, it's not all about the letter of the law. It's the spirit that we bring to our, and the spirit that we bring to our, our families, the laughter, sometimes the joy. Um, it's important that, that we do those things. So I pray you'd help us to be those kind of men that might lead our families in the right way, love our wives as we should, and that you might be able to bless our homes and, and, uh, and bless, bless our lives too, Lord. We thank you for this. Bless us on Sunday as we get ready. Again, for Adam's dad, I pray for blessings right now on him. Touch his life and help him. Bring him through this surgery, Lord, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen.